and welcome to the Turkish History Podcast. Episode 8, The Wise Khan. So last time we closed the book on the first Turkish Khanate. The Khanate had begun all the way back in 552 with Bumin's revolt against the Ruran. It had gone on to conquer virtually the whole Eurasian steppe, from the Black Sea to the Pacific, uniting it for the first time in history. The Khanate endured, in some form, for just over a century. It fell victim to instability, division, and civil war, and ultimately, its eastern half had brought its own undertaker into being, as the Tang dynasty arose, co-opted its troops, and even its ruling Ashna clan, to finally crush it. So now the Tang reigns supreme. The Turks crushed or assimilated, and the story ends, right? Well, actually, no. Because in the East, a restorationist project would arise, attempting to recreate the glory of the old Khanate. The Tang Dynasty, under emperors Gaozu and Taizong, had created a novel system. Both emperors were very culturally Turkish. They had deep familiarity with Turkish customs and surrounded themselves with Turkish courtiers. Turks served up to the very highest levels of their imperial administrations. They assimilated the Turks into their state and built essentially a Turco-Chinese war machine, which they then took out a conquering. These wars of conquest then let them distribute wealth to the Turks in the Tang armies, as was expected in the steppe tradition, with the emperor serving as a sort of Khan in the eyes of his Turkish troops. They created a truly Turco-Chinese fusion state, one that expanded its power and authority farther than any other Chinese dynasty, reaching deep into Central Asia in the West. And the participation of the Turks was crucial to the functioning of this system. With the death of Emperor Taizong and the ascension of his son, Emperor Gaozong, this system started falling apart. The Tang court fell into intrigue, as Emperor Gaozong increasingly revealed himself to be weak and incompetent. Where authority had previously been in some way shared by the emperor with the Chinese civil administration and the Turkish military men, authority now devolved to the Chinese civil administration. These civil administrators and bureaucrats were Han Chinese, products of the vaunted Chinese exam system. Culturally, they did not like the Turkish military men seeing them as uncultured, rough barbarians, unworthy to hold power in China. And for purely selfish reasons, it was also in their interest to prevent the Turks from advancing in this civil administration system. So they closed the doors of the civil administration and the bureaucracy to the Turks, even those who were cooked barbarians as we have called them. So even Turks who were sinicized and could have functioned in a Chinese bureaucracy were kept out. At the same time, the western conquests of the Tang stopped. The Tang instead began to be put on a defensive footing. The turn inwards at court, in time, resulted in neglect of the protectorate general to pacify the west, and the Tang were soon facing attacks and revolts by the Tiele, the Uyghurs, the western Turkish tribes, and by the Tibetans. The Tang were less and less able to support their Ashina puppet Khans in the west beyond the Tian Shan mountains and their control over Central Asia outside of the Tarim Basin loosened. In 670, the Tibetans were even able to seize several of the cities in the Tarim Basin. In 677, one of the western Ashina puppets rebelled against his Tang patrons and led an attack on the Tang, but he was defeated by the brilliant Han Chinese general Pei Jingjian, the then-sitting protector general to pacify the West. 
Despite this defeat, the very fact of these rebellions and invasions, the success of the Tibetans, and the attempt at a Western Turkish resurgence caused a number of problems for the Eastern Turks who had been assimilated by the Tang and formed to the core of the Tang armies. Firstly, they were no longer receiving the fruits of conquest. The Tang were in a sense failing in their duty as steppe lords to launch raids that led to booty and wealth flowing to their followers. The Chinese courtiers probably did not understand that this was a key component of legitimacy on the steppe in the same way that emperors Gaozu and Taizong knew and felt in their bones. Secondly, the Eastern Turks were now feeling pressure from these rebels and attackers. The Tibetans in particular were advancing steadily into the Eastern Turkish heartland. Finally, and perhaps most importantly, I think there was a generational divide. By the 670s, 20 years after the death of Ashinahelu, a generational shift had taken place in the ranks of the Eastern Turks serving the Tang. Their fathers had fought under and alongside Emperor Gaozu and Emperor Taizong. They knew and trusted these men, and they felt understood by them. Both emperors could speak Turkish, and not only knew how to understand and relate to their Turkish subjects, but respected them. Remember that Gaozu famously had a yurt built in his Chinese palace courtyard, which we used as a metaphor for his own cultural identity. Chinese on the outside, Turkish inside. Emperors Gaozu and Taizong were in many ways Khan emperors, men who existed in both worlds, and who tied the Turks to them in the traditional, personalist way of the steppe. But Emperor Gaozong did not have the same personal connection to his Turkish followers. Unlike his father and grandfather, he was thoroughly, culturally Chinese. His weakness also did not fit well with the Turkish political structure. On the grasslands, personal charisma was critical to a Khan's legitimacy, and Gaozong was really, really lacking in this department. So the ties between the Turks and the Tang state began to fray. Twenty years on from the defeat of the Western Khanate, the Turkish men who had fought for the Tang Khan emperors were either old or dead, and their sons did not have that same relationship with this new, weaker emperor. Their parents had been equal partners in what was essentially a Turkish-Chinese fusion state. They were increasingly becoming Turkish subjects of an essentially Chinese state. As the court became more and more Chinese, less and less Turkish, the Turks became alienated from it. And I think this combined with their other more material complaints to lead to a sense of bitter resentment against the Chinese. All of this compounded with a fear among the Turks that they were losing the culture of the steppe, losing their Turkish culture. During their time living under the Tang, the Turks were becoming somewhat more cooked, taking up Chinese titles, Chinese customs, with some even leaving the nomadic life behind. The generation that grew up under the Tang would have listened to the stories of the steppe world of their parents, and then looked around and have seen that they were not living in the same way. But at the same time, they were not so assimilated into Chinese culture that they had actually become Chinese and were accepted as equals in this new Chinese state that their parents had helped build. They were still locked out of that Chinese bureaucracy, still looked down upon by the Han Chinese nobles. And when you are afraid of losing your culture, you often latch onto it even more, especially when you are not fully accepted in the new culture either. 
Think about how some diaspora communities now are more aggressive about their nationalism than the people who live in the home country. Why? Because they feel both mistreated and feel like they are losing their culture. They partially assimilate, but hate their assimilation. And their partial assimilation is never really accepted by their country as making them the real deal, the same as the peoples of the culture they live in. So as this new Turkish generation came of age, they both felt mistreated and deeply resentful. The Orkhan inscriptions that they would come to etch in stone recorded in detail their resentments and the reasons for their coming revolt. Those chieftains who were in China adopted Chinese titles and obeyed the Chinese emperor. They gave their services and their strength to him for fifty years. For him they waged war in the east, towards the sun rising, as far as Bokli Khan. In the west, they made expeditions as far as Temir Kapa. For the Chinese emperor, they conquered kingdoms and power. They surrendered to the Chinese emperor their empire and their own law. Then the Turks and all of the common people said, I used to be of a people that had an empire. Where is my empire now? For whose benefit am I conquering realms? By saying so, they became foes of the Chinese emperor. These feelings of resentment ultimately culminated in a revolt by the Turks in 679. The rebellion took place on the steppes of Inner Asia, near the Chinese frontier, where the Turks had been settled by the Tang. Driven by their resentment of what the Tang dynasty had become, by their yearning to reclaim the culture of their parents' generation, the rebels attempted to break free of the Tang. They proclaimed a man named Ashina Nishufu as Khan. As a member of the old Ashina clan that had ruled the first Khanate, this was clearly a hearkening back to the past. It also shows the continued staying power of the Ashina clan's prestige, and just how effective the royal propaganda of the first Khanate had actually been. What we don't know is just how much power Ashina Nishufu actually had. His presence in the sources is so fleeting that we know almost nothing about him. My suspicion is that he may have been merely a figurehead for the rebels, who felt they needed the Ashina name to legitimize the revolt. Regardless, this revolt was short-lived. Pei Jingzhan defeated the rebels in their very first battle, just as he had defeated the Western Khanate pretender two years earlier. But Pei Jingzhan was not able to completely crush the rebellion. The remnants of the rebels regrouped and promptly killed Ashina Nishufu and acclaimed another member of the Ashina clan as Khan. Under this Khan, Ashina Funyan, the rebellion rumbled on with somewhat more success. But the end result was the same. After a couple of fleeting victories, Pei Jingzhan defeated the Turkish rebels and Ashina Funyan was captured and taken to the Tang capital to be executed. Shortly after this second defeat, a number of Turkish tribal leaders decided that no rebellion could be successful so close to China. They also felt the pull of the steppe. The desire to return to the lands that their parents and grandparents had raised up in their stories as the origin of their people, the center of their lost empire. They wanted to leave the frontier lands in which they had been placed and return home, to a home they themselves had never seen. They yearned to return to the holy mountains of Otukan, the heartland of the dead Khanate. I think of it as something like early Turkish Zionism almost, except instead of saying next year in Jerusalem, it's next year in Ötükan. And so in 680, as the rebellion was falling to the protector general, a number of Turkish tribes left the Chinese borderlands and moved back to the fabled Ötükan mountains. 
a land they had known only in stories told around the campfire as the holy land of their people. As we said in episode 3, Otukan had served as both the political center of the first Khanate during its zenith and as a deeply spiritual place, tied to the Khan's temporal and spiritual power. And one of these small tribes was an exceptionally small tribe of only 200 or so families, led by a man named Kutluk Shad. Kutluk Shad was a member of the Ashina clan, but a distant relative from the old Khanate's ruling family core. His father and grandfather had served as Tuduns under the first Khanate, that is, as tax collectors, and as Turkish representatives of the Khan acting as governors, overseeing a small oasis city. Kutluk was therefore not an inner circle member of the Ashina clan by any means. He was not a descendant of either Bumin or Ishtami, but rather from a far more distant and humble branch of the family. But from these relatively humble beginnings, Kutluk would go on to conquer. He started off small, launching raids against the Uyghurs in 681 and raiding into some of the Chinese frontier lands. He established himself as the leader of those tribes that had fled to Otukan, and in 682, he felt secure enough of his position among these tribes that he proclaimed himself Ilterish Khan, inaugurating what is called the Second Turkish Khanate. In 683, to secure his legitimacy as Khan, he launched an attack on the Tang Protector General in Hohot in modern-day Inner Mongolia, capturing and killing the local officials. He then defeated a Tang force sent to bring him to justice. As he became more and more successful and raided and conquered across the steppe, he gathered more and more followers. He did this both through conquest, forcing the tribes to submit to him, and by diplomacy, encouraging the tribes to join him. His reputation grew, and more and more Turks still under Tang rule, burning with resentment against the Chinese state, began leaving the Tang to join him. Over a period of 10 years, he launched at least 47 campaigns and engaged in over 20 large battles. In all of this, Ilterish Khan's right-hand man, his premier, lead general, and most trusted advisor was a man named Tonyukuk. Tonyukuk was reportedly born in 646 in China. He was a member of the Ashide clan, one of the most powerful clans of the first Khanate, and one with historically deep ties to the ruling Ashina clan. The Ashide clan had traditionally provided many of the wives to the Ashina. Tonyukuk was therefore deeply familiar with Tang government structures and Chinese culture, but he was a Turkish aristocrat. Tonyukuk was an incredibly competent statesman. More than being a great general, he was a great organizer, a great administrator. Having grown up in China proper, he knew the scale and sophistication of the Chinese administrative state, and he learned from it and was able to imitate it and adapt it to the steppe world to great effect. Tonyukuk had joined the initial failed revolt against the Tang, but following its collapse, he fled to the steppe where he met Kutluk Shad. After Kutluk Shad became Ilterish Khan, he increasingly began to rely on Tonyukuk, giving him command of the new Khanate's growing armies and the nascent civil administration of the state. As Tonyukuk succeeded, Ilterish Khan devolved more and more power and authority to him, ultimately relying on him deeply to run his new state and gave him the title Tar Khan. Tonyukuk was absolutely critical to the rise of Ilterish Khan and he would rise to such a position that he would be the only non-royal to commission one of the famous Gokturk inscriptions. One part of his inscription, a little bit immodestly, lays out just how important he was to the rise of the state. I compelled Kutluk Shad to become Khan, 
He said, Let me then be Ilterish Khan, since I have the wise Tonyukuk Boilabaga Tarkhan by my side. To the south he defeated the Chinese, to the east the Katai, to the north the Ohus in great numbers. His fellow in wisdom and his fellow in renown was myself. Now this new state, built by Ilterish Khan and Tonyukuk, was not a continuation of the first Khanate. None of the old Khanate's institutions had survived. Indeed, even the ruling family was in some ways different. Yes, an Ashina was still at the head, but this was an Ashina no one had ever heard of, from a distant branch of the clan no one ever cared about. No one even knew how old he was. Instead, this new state, this second Khanate, was an evocation, a hearkening back, almost an homage to the first Khanate, an echo of the former glory. It is clear that an attempt was made to resurrect the old titles and the old structures of the first Khanate, but it did not happen in necessarily the same forms. Additionally, the founders of this new state, in particular Tonyukuk, had deep familiarity with the internal structures of the Tang Empire, but only knew of the first Khanate what their parents and grandparents would have told them. So the state they actually built turned out to be different from the state that they set out to recreate. At the center of this new state was the Ashina clan, but not the old ruling family. Instead, Iltidish Khan's family, formerly on the outskirts of the clan, now formed the center. By his side, in the inner core of the new Ashina ruling family, Iltidish Khan was aided by his brother, Kapagan Khan, himself a great general. This inner family was augmented by those members of the Ashina clan that had fled the Tang, or the disorder in the West brought by the collapse of the Sassanid Empire at the hand of the new Muslim armies, which we will discuss in more detail next episode. But rank in the old Khanate's family didn't really matter. These family members would be employed as shahs and royal officials. Directly serving the Khan, Tonyukuk appears to have created something approaching a Chinese-style civil service but this should not be confused with the truly sophisticated Chinese civil service or even the old Khanate's core of officials and advisors. Rather, this was an ad hoc assembly of advisors and lower-ranking officials who assisted the Khan and Tonyukuk in overseeing and managing the tribes, distributing booty, dealing with foreign tribes, and with the Chinese. Aside from Tonyukuk and his brother Kapagan Khan, Ilterish Khan also appointed his two sons to serve as shahs under him, to prepare them for the throne. These two men were very different from each other. The younger son of Ilterish Khan was the great warrior Kultegin, valiant in battle, who would ride out on the front lines personally to lead his men on his great gray stallion named Bashku. The elder son, Mochilen, was not a great general. He was far more reserved, more at home with his thoughts than leading men on the battlefield, but possessed of a keen intellect and a cunning mind. A mind that would turn ideas over, coming up with new ideas and new thoughts, integrating what he saw and heard and read to make something new. In time, Mochilen would become the famous Bilge Khan, meaning the wise Khan. And unlike most of the Turkish brothers we've covered so far, Kultegin and Bilge Khan did not fall into fratricidal power struggles trying to kill each other to gain the throne. Amazingly, both seemed to have actually loved and supported each other. They knew that their strengths complemented each other, and that they worked better as a team. This is pure speculation, but I think the fact that their father was not the all-powerful Khan when they were born had something to do with this. They weren't born in the purple, as the Romans would say. Instead, they were raised together in that small tribe of 200 families, eking out a living upon the return to Otukan. 
and they would have accompanied their father on his rise to the top together. That is, they were not raised from birth to see the other as a potential rival for a great throne. And as their father Iltidish conquered, they stood in the wings, ready to succeed him when the time came. Separately, and underneath the Ashna clan, were the Dokus Okus, that is, the Nine Tribes. The exact nature of the relationship between the Khanate and the Dokus Okus is very unclear. It is interesting that the inscriptions made during the Second Khanate all distinguish between the Turks and the Okus, like they are two separate peoples. But at the same time, they also seem to consider the Dokus Okus as part of the state. One of the inscriptions, for example, says, The Dokus Okus people were my own people. I think the most likely story is that the inscriptions are using Turk to refer primarily to the Gokturk ruling clans, the core of the state, and the Dokuz Okuz were a separate political unit within the Khanate. The origins of the Dokuz Okuz aren't clear, but I think that most likely they were a political confederation of nine tribes that at some point was assimilated into the new Khanate by Iltirish Khan and Tonyukuk, either by conquest or through diplomacy. But despite being assimilated into the state, they were not digested wholly and remained a separate confederation within the new Khanate. But they were not conquered vassals. They were incredibly high-ranking within the state. So that is the basic nature of the new state that Iltirish Khan and Tonyukuk had built. It had been built from basically nothing. 200-some-odd families and a couple generals with experience fighting with and then against the Tang. But by the time of his death in 692, we can say that Iltirish Khan had reconquered a large part of the lands of the former eastern Turkish Khanate. There was no real great showdown with the Tang. Instead, this was a war of small cuts, both against the Tang and against the other tribes, and it was accomplished as much by diplomacy and negotiation with the tribes as it was through war. In scope, the second Khanate stretched over Mongolia and the Gobi Desert, reaching into the Kazakh steppes and the frontiers of northern China. Tang control over the northern steppe was greatly weakened, and with the Tarim Basin now under Tibetan influence, the protectorates general of the Tang that had previously reigned supreme in Inner Asia were greatly reduced, shadows of their former selves. Upon his death in 692, Iltirish Khan was succeeded by his brother, Kapagan Khan. But the death of Iltirish Khan did not mean the fall of Tanyukuk, who remained on in his position. In fact, the death of Iltirish Khan likely made Tonyukuk stronger. He and his civil service had the knowledge and experience of power. Tonyukuk became increasingly the power behind the throne. But we should not think that Kapagan Khan was a figurehead. He had been with his brother through all of his conquests, and he had his own support and legitimacy, and was himself a great and skillful general. It would be under his reign that the second Khanate would reach the zenith of its military power. Additionally, Kultegin and Bilge Khan remained in power as Shads, serving their uncle. Even though Kultegin had not succeeded his father to the throne due to his youth, as he grew older and stronger, his skill as a soldier and a general was apparent. He would rise to be a powerful general commanding the Turkish armies. Additionally, Bilge Khan also came to power under Kapagan Khan's reign, both as a military leader and as an advisor. Though he lacked the sheer military aptitude of his younger brother Kultigin, he was more subtle and more cultured, excelling as a diplomat and a politician under Kapagan Khan. Now, the ascension of Kapagan Khan happened nearly simultaneously with a political crisis in China. 
In 692, the Tang throne had been seized in a coup d'etat by Empress Wu, the powerful and canny consort to the timid and weak Emperor Gaozong. She had accumulated power through her husband's reign and her regency over her children, before ultimately dispossessing her own children to rule in her own right. This presented a real opportunity to the Second Khanate. Had they wanted to, I think there is little doubt that the Second Khanate could have supplanted the Tang and founded a new dynasty. Yet they appear to have had no interest in this. I think this was caused by the very cultural resentments that led to the founding of the Second Khanate in the first place. We can see this in the Gokturk inscriptions. A land better than Otuken does not exist at all. The place from which the tribes can best be controlled is Otuken. Having stayed here, I came to a beneficial agreement with the Chinese. The Chinese gave us gold, silver, and silk in abundance. Having been taken in by their sweet words and soft materials, you Turkish people were killed in great numbers. O oh, Turkish people, you will die if you intend to settle at the Choai Mountains and on the Toltun Plain in the south. When China was strong, the Turks invaded to force them to the table. Now that the Tang were weak and divided, the Turks could sit back and collect tribute, negotiate gifts and potential marriages with the various factions and make their demands. With a weak China, the Turks were in a perfect position to dive headlong into Tang politics, maybe put a favorable emperor on the throne, and extract as much treasure as possible, extend their grip from Inner Asia into northern China, the Tarim Basin, and the western Tang possessions. But they didn't do that. Under Kapagan Khan, the Second Khanate instead dealt with the Tang strategically. In 693, upon coming to power, Kapagan Khan raided deep into China, both to acquire loot and let the Tang know that he was not a weak Khan who could be pushed around, and because raiding into China was such a critical part of legitimizing a Khan's rule. Kapagan Khan's forces crushed the Tang army sent out to fight him, led by General Li Totsu. In the peace treaty that he forced upon the Chinese, Kapagan Khan demanded that the remaining eastern Turks under Tang rule be released and sent to him, which the Tang agreed to do. Though of course many of these eastern Turks did not actually go to the new Khanate. Having lived under Tang rule for decades, and having not rebelled or fled to the second Khanate so far, there were many Turks who were still Tang through and through, and who would continue to serve as the backbone of the state's military. But at the same time, Kapagan Khan was not totally opposed to the Tang. When Khitan revolts flared up against the Tang during their internal political struggles, in 696, Kapagan Khan ruthlessly put them down at the Tang's request, and in exchange for receiving vast treasures, of course. Kapagan Khan would also launch a flurry of raids into China, both for plunder and to keep the Tang from getting ideas. Chinese records are replete with references to the Turks carrying off 100,000 horses here, enslaving 400,000 people there, and so on. The Tang were forced to pay the Khan silks, gold, and silver as tribute, and a vast hoard of treasure flowed north from China, greatly enriching the second Khanate. But the key thing to remember is that Kapagan Khan's relations with the Chinese, with the Tang dynasty, were essentially transactional and they were not the main focus of his attention. So instead of focusing on China, what was the focus of Kapagan Khan and the Second Khanate? 
while the second khanate was focused primarily on the lands of the former western khanate, across the Tian Shan mountain on the steppes of modern-day Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan. And it was for primarily ideological reasons that the second khanate saw these campaigns to the west, the lands of the former western khanate, as far more important than raiding into China. Because it was only by going west that you could truly reconstitute the dead first khanate. So what was happening in the West? As we discussed last time, the Tang had appointed Ashina puppet khans to govern the lands beyond the Tian Shan. Now, as I mentioned earlier, there had been some revolts among these Ashina puppets as Tang power weakened. But more or less, the Tang were able to hold it together in the West until Empress Wu's reign. However, the political crisis in China during Empress Wu's reign stripped the Tang of their ability to prop up these puppet khans. Additionally, as the protectorate general to pacify the West weakened, the Uyghurs and the Tibetans had pressed in, conquering various parts of Central Asia and totally undermining Tang rule outside the Tarim Basin. Central Asia was just too far and too low down the list of priorities for the Tang. The troops and money were needed closer to home. The loss of Tang support fatally weakened the Ashina puppet Khans in the West. In 699, a leader of the Dolu faction of the Ten Arrows, a man named Uch Elig, who had been appointed as Tarkhan to an Ashina puppet Khan, rebelled against his nominal overlord and forced him to flee into exile in Tang, China. Uch Elig then proclaimed himself Khan and established the Turgesh Khanate, which took over the leadership of the Western Turks. To secure his position, Uch Elig sought and received Tang recognition though the Tang kept an Ashna puppet Khan in their back pocket just in case. The Turgesh centered their new Khanate around the northern valleys of the Tian Shan in modern-day Kyrgyzstan, close to the city of Suyab, which is near the current-day capital of Kyrgyzstan, Bishkek. Just as the second Khanate would lead a resurrection of the Turks in the east that was an echo of the old eastern Khanate, so too would the Turgesh, remember came from the Dolu wing of the Ten Arrows, come to lead a resurrection of the Khanate in the West, but one that was an even fainter echo of the old Western Khanate. In time, the Turgesh will become very, very important to our story, because it is the Turgesh who will come to face off against the armies of Islam. But that's for a later episode. Turgesh rule was not universal and did not encompass all of the lands of the former Western Khanate. There is also no indication that they managed or even really tried to recreate the civil service and other sophisticated state institutions of the government of the first Khanate. They also did not have the vaunted Ashina name to rely upon. Furthermore, their control over the subject tribes did not approach that of either the first Khanate or this new second Khanate in the east. On the steppe itself, there were other tribes, like the Kyrgyz, the Karluks, the Basmil, and the Kimeks, whose acceptance of Turgesh overlordship was, at best, lukewarm. To the south, the Sogdian city-states had regained their independence, and without the Khan on top to settle their disputes, had fallen into bitter wars with each other. In the far west, the Khazars had established their own powerful Khanate north of the Caspian and the Black Sea, and as we will discuss next time, Further to the west and the south, a new empire had emerged and conquered Iran, powered by a new religion. Kapagan Khan saw the rise of the Turgesh as a challenge. His goal, the goal of the whole Second Khanate, was the restoration of the prior glory of the first Turkish Khanate. 
And accomplishing that meant conquering and reuniting the steppe. Not just to resurrect the Eastern Khanate, but to recreate the power of the First Khanate at its height, when the Ashina clan ruled the steppe, from the Black Sea to the Pacific, the undisputed lords of the grasslands. After the rise of the Turgesh, Kapagan Khan refused to recognize them, and instead elevated his son as the Onok Khan, giving him the title Khan Who Reconquers the West. Obviously, this was not appreciated by the Turgesh. So almost immediately, these two would-be restorers started down the road to war. A war that the Second Khanate was destined to win. The Turgesh were just not as established as the Second Khanate, and they just lacked the resources and manpower to equal this new Khanate in the East. And they lacked a Tonyukuk, capable of building a sophisticated bureaucracy and state structure. The Turgesh also suffered from the traditional Turkish problem of disunity, which would ultimately be a huge factor in their loss to their eastern rivals. The Second Khanate came out of the gate strong in its western campaigns. Tonyukuk was sent against the Kyrgyz in about the year 700, routing them. But the defeated Kyrgyz fled to the Turgesh and joined them in opposition to the Second Khanate. The Tang thereupon began to reach out to the Turgesh and to the Kyrgyz, to draw them into an alliance against this mighty second khanate. Tonyukuk's inscriptions say, The Chinese emperor was our foe. The Khan of the Ten Arrows was our foe. Furthermore, the Kyrgyz mighty Khan became our foe. These three Khans took counsel together. As a side note, it's very interesting to note that he calls the Tang emperor a Khan. It really underlines the extent to which Tang legitimacy on the steppe was based on their Turkish roots the extent to which the Turks saw the Tang Emperor as something like a Khan Emperor. After continuous campaigning around Lake Baikal and the Altai Mountains to bring the tribes to heel in the early 700s, Kapagan Khan ultimately defeated the Karluks and the Basmils in several battles in the years 706 and 707. This allowed the Khanate to expand to the area around Lake Baikal and begin to contest the rule of the Turgesh farther to the west. Now the Turgesh did not take this sitting down, and they began launching raids across the Tian Shan and into the area around Lake Baikal that had just been conquered. The Second Khanate then prepared to respond, to totally defeat their rival to the west. But like I said, this was not a fight between equals, and the Second Khanate launched a devastating series of large campaigns led by Tonyukuk and Kultegin personally. In 710, the Turgesh Khan, Uch Elig's second son, Zhenhu, revolted and fled to the Second Khanate. He provided valuable intelligence on Turgesh movements, allowing a 20,000-strong army to defeat the Turgesh and their Kyrgyz allies. According to the inscriptions, Tonyukuk personally led a vanguard of the Second Khanate's armies and won a minor victory. But the armies of the Second Khanate were dismayed at the size of the large Turgesh armies, and almost abandoned the fight. Tonyukuk and Kultegin urged them on and led them to a great clash on the river Bolchu. After two days of hard fighting, the second Khanate was victorious. Uch Elig Khan's first son and chosen heir was captured and executed. The inscriptions say, The Kyrgyz Khan we slew and took their realm. In the same year we marched against the Turgesh over the Altai mountain forest and crossing over the river Urtish. The Turgesh folk we fell upon as they slept. 
The Turgesh Khan's army came up the Bolchu like fire and storm, and we fought. Kul Tegin attacked, riding on the gray horse Bashku. Then we slew the Khan and took over his kingdom. The whole of the common Turgesh people submitted. The victory of the second Khanate at the Battle of Bolchu marked the defeat of the Turgesh, but they weren't destroyed. Instead, they became a subject of the second Khanate, and they still have an important part to play in our story. But for now, we'll leave them here, humbled by their eastern cousins. Following these victories, the Second Khanate had extended its power beyond the walls of the Tian Shan and the Altai, and stood as the most powerful steppe empire east of the Khazar Khanate to the north of the Black Sea. Its power and influence began to spread south and west, across the steppe, and into the Silk Road cities of Sogdiana. It would seem that the Second Khanate was destined to complete the missions set forth in the Gokturk inscriptions and reunite the steppe, to complete the resurrection of the original Turkish Khanate. As the inscriptions say, From them that had a kingdom, we took away their kingdom. Them that had a Khan, we robbed of their Khan. We made them bend their knee and bow their head. But it was at this point that the second Khanate ran up against a new force. As we will discuss in the next couple episodes, the Arab armies of Islam had tentatively begun moving into Central Asia from newly conquered Iran. And as they advanced into Central Asia, the Arab armies began conquering and putting pressure on the Central Asian city-states, some of whose kings had begun sending frantic letters east, begging for aid from the Second Khanate against this new and strange enemy. In response to one of these letters from a client king of Ferghana Valley, the Turkish armies led by Tonyukuk set forth to confront the Arab armies sometime around 713. Here they ran into the vanguard of the Arab armies, tentatively advancing into Central Asia under the command of the great general Kutaiba. In this first encounter, the Muslims were victorious in a battle outside of Samarkand. The Turkish armies were almost totally destroyed, and Tonyukuk barely escaped back to Otukan. The remnants of the Turkish armies were only able to get back home with great difficulty. Later, in 714, the Second Khanate organized a campaign against Beshbaluk, which, by the way, means five fish in Turkish. Now, this was a Tang garrison city guarding the northern passes into the Tarim Basin. This Turkish army was led by members of the royal family, including the future Bilge Khan, and included the remnants of the Turkish army from Sogdiana, fleeing their destruction at the hands of the armies of Islam. The campaign against the Tang was also a failure, though, and the Turks were routed and defeated outside the walls of Beshbaluk. According to the Chinese sources, the leader of the Turkish army was beheaded, and various Turkish nobles fled to China, where they were settled and married into the Tang royal dynasty. These two great back-to-back defeats, one to the Arabs and one to the Tang, spelled the end of the second Khanate's attempt to resurrect the old Khanate in full and rule the whole steppe yet again. By 715, the western Turkish tribes living west of the mountains were in open revolt, most importantly the Turgesh, who as we will discuss in depth in later episodes, were just now coming under a new leader, a man who will become incredibly important to our story, the famous Suluk Khan. Additionally, the Karluks and many of the smaller western Turkish tribes then nominally submitted to the Tang in 715, just as the Arabs continued to slowly encroach on the lands of the former western Khanate from the south. 
Attempting to put down this revolt among the western Turks, Kapagan Khan fell in ambush set by the Turgesh in 715. And then, shortly after Kapagan Khan's death, Suluk Khan, now on the throne, inflicted yet another defeat on the second Khanate, avenging the Turgesh for the Battle of Bolchu and permanently breaking the Turgesh away, securing their independence from the second Khanate. These victories by the Turgesh and the death of Kapagan Khan of course kicked off a civil war within the Second Khanate, like always. See, before his death, Kapagan Khan had set up a number of his sons as junior Khans in order to give them a position to succeed him, and he had given lower ranks to his nephews, the sons of the dynasty's founder, Iltirish Khan. Kapagan Khan was laying the ground for his own sons to take over, to cut out the line of Iltirish Khan from the succession. Kültegin and Bilge Khan, as the sons of Iltirish Khan, were of course having none of this. And so the lines for the coming civil war were drawn. The resulting civil war, however, appears to have been short. Kültegin struck first, and with total ruthlessness. He utterly crushed the sons of Kapagan Khan, exterminating all of them. He then cleaned house and had all of the former Khan's advisors executed, with the notable exception of Tonyukuk. Likely Tonyukuk had been too wily to have sided with the inexperienced sons of Kapagan Khan, but it's also possible that Kultegin realized that Tonyukuk was indispensable and determined that he had to keep him alive. Tonyukuk reconciled himself to the new regime and married his daughter Elbilge Khatun to Bilge Khan as one of his wives, finally succeeding in marrying his children into the royal house. He would serve Kultegin and Bilge Khan loyally until his death in 717, retaining and even further building his power behind the throne. Kultegin did not, however, claim the throne for himself. He instead placed his elder brother on the throne as Bilge Khan. The two brothers functioned in practice as a political-military duo. Bilge Khan was the politician, the diplomat, who negotiated with the tribes and the nobility and performed the important religious and political ceremonies as the Khan, who along with Tonyukuk oversaw the civil service and the administration. Kültegin was the brave soldier, the great general, focused on conquest and military matters. Together, they formed a powerful partnership. The primary goal of this partnership was to reassert the authority of the Khan over the subject tribes. During the course of the civil war, the revolt had not stopped, of course. The Turgesh had taken up the opportunity to throw off the second Khanate's yoke and were gone for good. But now not only were the Turgesh in revolt, but so were the Tokus Okus and the tribes of the second Khanate's heartland. Kültegin and Bilge Khan spent many years putting them down in a series of campaigns, mostly led by Kültegin. Following these campaigns, in 720, Kültegin defeated the Tang in a brief war launched by the Tang along with the Khitan, the Bosmals, and the other tribes. This resulted in a lucrative peace treaty. Tang sources say that the emperor sent the Khan an annual gift of 100,000 balls of silk. The defeat of the rebellion and of the Tang and the tribute and the trade with China made the Khanate rich again. Bilge Khan would come to inscribe the following regarding the struggles he and Kultigin overcame as they established their rule. For the name and the fame of the Turk people would not perish, that Tengri enthroned me. I did not become ruler of a wealthy and prosperous people at all. 
On the contrary, I became a ruler of poor and miserable people, who were foodless inside and clothless outside. I and Kultigin, my younger brother, consulted together. For the name and fame of people, which our father and uncle had ruled, would not perish. And for the sake of the Turk people, I did not sleep at night, and I did not relax by day. Together with my younger brother Kultigin, the two Shahs, we worked to death, and I won. Having won and gathered in that way, I did not let people split into two peoples like fire and water. When I succeeded to the throne in all countries, people who had gone in almost all directions, vagrant people, came back utterly exhausted, without horses and without clothes came back. In order to nourish people, I, with great armies, went on campaigns twelve times, northwards against the Okus people, eastward against the Catan and the Tatabi, southwards against the Chinese. After that, since I had fortune, and since I had good luck, Tengri was gracious. I brought people to life who were going to perish and nourish them. I dressed naked people with clothes, and I made poor people rich, and few people numerous. I made them superior to people who had great states and esteemed rulers. I subdue all people, who live in all four parts of the world. There was no enemy left. Many of them submitted to me. The riches of these victories funded the political projects of Bilge Khan. His legacy was far more important than just reasserting control of the Khanate over the eastern steppes. See, Bilge Khan wanted to do more than just conquer. He wanted to build. He wanted to invent. He wanted to create. And ultimately, it would be Bilge Khan's creations, not Kultigin's conquests, that would reverberate through history and come down to us today. Now, Bilge Khan did the traditional step reformer stuff, of course. He strengthened and reorganized the state and attempted to systemize taxation and create a more professional and permanent Chinese-style civil service. You know, think back to Duobi Khan in Episode 6, or all the way back to the Ruran Anagui Khan in Episode 1. Bilge Khan was a figure like that, a reformer who wanted to create a more sedentary-style state. In all of this, he appears to have been advised and aided by his brilliant wife, El Bilge Kahatun, daughter of Tonyukuk. Bilge Khan also planned on building a capital city for the Turks, but was dissuaded in doing this by Tonyukuk, who reminded him that the power of the Turks was in their mobility, and building a city on the steppe would tie them in one place. If it were destroyed, it would end the state. But this desire for permanence, for creation, for placing something enduring and fixed on the ever-moving and fluid steppe was realized in other ways. Bilge Khan is responsible for one of the most enduring symbols of the Turks, because it was under his reign that the famous Göktürk inscriptions were made. I have used these inscriptions extensively over the past episodes, and especially in this episode, as they represent the only pre-Islamic Turkish primary source, the only text written by the Turks in their own language and not about them by outsiders. The inscriptions vary in size. The largest are written on massive stones, more than twice the height of a man, and are carved in Turkish runes in the Turkish language. They lay out the history of the Turks, as seen by the ruling class of the Second Khanate, and glorify the Ashina clan. Fittingly, given the overtly Turkish restorationist character of the Second Khanate, they glorify no gods but the traditional Turkish pantheon, Tengri above all. Bilge Khan and Tonyukuk ordered the creation of at least four great stone inscriptions on the steppe, and many other small ones. Indeed, there may be many more. A new inscription was found in August of 22, just a couple of months before I recorded this very podcast episode. 
Now the practice of carving on stones in the steppe goes back millennia. There are Stone Age inscriptions in the mountains of Kyrgyzstan, for example. During the first Turkish Khanate, Tasbar Khan began carving royal messages and propaganda into large stones on the steppe in the Sogdian language and script. Almost certainly, this practice continued during the first Khanate, and the Turks began to use their own alphabet and language to carve inscriptions as time went on. We just haven't found the stones yet, or the stones have been destroyed or eroded in the intervening centuries. Indeed, it is likely for this reason that the Turkic runic script was developed in the first place during the first Khanate. But the inscriptions erected under Bilge Khan were an order of magnitude grander than anything that had come before. Not only were they larger, but they speak with a personal voice. Not just dry lists of battles and names of khans and emperors and territories, they lay out a narrative, a story of triumph and loss, of victory and defeat, with messages and lessons, at times full of force and emotion. They transcend mere record-keeping or royal propaganda, though they are also both, and are a type of art, both physical and literary. Beautiful poetry and prose, carved beautifully into stone, and bearing witness to the world of a Turkish culture and tradition of statehood, free and independent. They lay out the story and narrative of the Turks as the Turks saw it. They were the product of a society living through a golden age, what would come to be the last pre-Islamic golden age of the Turks. But this golden age would not last. In 731, Kültigin died naturally. Bilge Khan grieved his brother's death and ordered a massive funeral ceremony. Indeed, the most impressive of the Göktürk inscriptions was erected by Bilge Khan in honor of his brother and described their battles, their struggles, and their victories. In it, he inscribed in stone forever his feelings of loss and sorrow at the death of his brother. My younger brother Kultigin passed away. I mourned myself missing him. My eyes to see became as if they were blind. My mind to think became as if it were unconscious. I mourned myself missing him. Tengri creates death. Human beings have all been created in order to die. Yet still I mourned badly. Tears dropped down from my eyes and did not stop. Sorrow captured my heart and did not pass away. I cried, missing him always. I mourned deeply in sorrow. I worried that in the eyes and eyebrows of my two shods, and of my younger brothers left behind, my sons, my lords, and all of my people, I could have been seen a coward. I missed him so. Without Kultigin, the partnership that had powered the Khanate lost its military half. The tribes that Kultigin had subdued quickly rose in revolt. While Bilge Khan was able to defeat the Khitan in 733, the authority of the Khanate over the tribes remained shaky. In 734, Bilge Khan was assassinated, probably poisoned by his own ministers, and joined his beloved brother in death. He was succeeded by his son, Yolig Khan, about whom little is known other than that his wife was probably Chinese, and at his death, she fled back to the Tang. He either reigned for one year or five years before dying, and was succeeded by Bilge Khan's younger son, Tengri Khan. Tengri Khan would prove to be the final ruler of the Second Khanate. He was the product of Bilge Khan's marriage to Tonyukuk's daughter, El Bilge Khatun, who acted as a regent for the young boy. El Bilge Khatun had some of her father's brilliance, and she attempted to maintain power of the Khanate's central governance under her regency, but she was opposed by the elder generation of the royal family, then serving as shahs of the various territories of the Khanate. 
these royal family elders were likely from other branches of the Ashina clan not descended from Iltirish Khan, the original founder of the Second Khanate. This proved to be completely unstable, of course, likely at least in part because the regent was a woman. In 741, Tengri Khan was assassinated by one of these Shads. The state fell into crisis immediately as the Shads fought for the throne and the subject tribes revolted. The assassin himself was killed in a revolt of the Basmal. The civil war among the Ashna resulted in a Yabgu of the Khanate, Kutluk Yabgu Khan, placing a young son of Bilge Khan on the throne as a puppet Khan, before ultimately killing him and taking power for himself, of course. But this was not accepted by all of the Shads and officials of the Khanate, and the civil war continued. The Tang, of course, took advantage of this chaos to assist in an uprising of the tribes to defeat the second Khanate. In 744, an alliance of subject tribes, the Basmal, the Karluk, and the Uyghurs, assisted by the Tang, crushed the armies of Kutluk, Yabgu, Khan. Following this, the Uyghurs turned on their erstwhile allies. In time, they would go on to found their own empire. Just as the first Turkish Khanate had been founded after the defeat of the Ruran Khanate, a new Khanate would be born from the defeat of the second Turkish Khanate. Thus ended the second Turkish Khanate. Though short-lived, it left a great and enduring legacy. The Second Khanate was the final great pre-Islamic Turkish state. In the future, after the discovery and deciphering of the Göktürk inscriptions in the 1890s, the First and Second Turkish Khanates would become a touchstone for emerging Turkish nationalism. They would be raised up by Turkish nationalists to build a narrative of Turkishness separate from Islam a proof of a pre-existing Turkish culture and Turkish greatness. You see, the stones were discovered and deciphered just as ideas of nationalism came flooding into the Ottoman Empire in the late 19th century from Europe. And as nationalists in the late Ottoman Empire, awash with this nationalist feeling and furor from Europe, began groping towards an identity for the Turks, they needed a pre-Islamic history to hearken back to. The secular nationalists in particular needed to find a narrative a tradition of Turkish history separate from the religion. And they found it here, in the history that we have covered for the past eight episodes. In carving his people's history into stone, Bilge Khan unknowingly left a story that his descendants would pick up and carry forward. This newly discovered history of the first and second Khanate, the legend of Ergenekon, the very inscriptions themselves, would come to serve as powerful symbols to the nationalist movement, and eventually the young republic. Not just as symbols, but as powerful proof of a pre-Islamic greatness of the Turks. Coupled with the history of the coming Islamic Turkish states, the history of the first and second Khanate would also be used by Turkish nationalists as proof that the Turks as a people had a natural genius for state building, just as they began building a new, secular republic. In time, reproductions of the great Göktürk inscription stones would be erected in Turkey, far from the steppes of Mongolia, under the trees by the Bosphorus and on the steppes of Anatolia. Modern-day Turks have adopted the long-forgotten runic alphabet and use it decoratively to show their ethnic and national pride. When you go to Istanbul today, you are sure to see young men walking around with tattoos reading Türk, written in the long-lost runes, on giant stones, standing still on the faraway steppes. But for now, we are going to leave the Turks where they are. The Second Khanate broken, the Uyghurs triumphant in the east, the Turgesh mired in chaos in the west. Because next time, we are going to travel back in time 
roughly 130 years before the fall of the Eastern Khanate, and travel thousands of miles away from the steppes of Central Asia. Because in 610, an event had occurred that would alter the history of the Turks, and indeed of the world, forever. In a cave, on a desolate mountain outside of a regional trading city of no great importance, a middle-aged merchant of no great importance sat deep in prayer and meditation. Suddenly, in a great flash, an angel appeared before him. The man, frozen by fear, stood transfixed as the angel commanded him, Recite. <laughs> 